I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Deuteronomy chapters 3 and 4. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. In chapter 2, Moses was giving a history lesson to the new generation of Israelites. And in chapter 3, we come to King Og, verse 1. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. And the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. You shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So the Lord our God also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them, sixty cities, all the region of Argob, the king of Og and Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many rural towns. And we utterly destroyed them, as we did to Sihon king of Eshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as booty for ourselves. And at that time we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were on this side of the Jordan, from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, and the Amorites call it Sinar. All the cities of the plain, all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Salka and Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits is its length, and four cubits its width, according to the standard cubit. And this land which we possessed at that time from Aror, which is by the river Arnon, and half the mountains of Gilead and its cities, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to half the tribe of Manasseh. All the region of Argob, with all Bashan, was called the land of the giants. Jer, the son of Manasseh, took all the region of Argob as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Maacathites, and called Bashan after his own name, Havath Jer, to this day. Also I gave Gilead to Maker. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave from Gilead as far as the river Arnon, the middle of the river as the border, as far as the river Jabbok, the border of the people of Ammon. The plain also with the Jordan as the border from Kinnereth as far as the east side of the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, below the slopes of Pisgah. Then I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All you men of valor shall cross over armed before your brethren, the children of Israel. But your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall stay in your cities which I have given you, until the Lord has given rest to your brethren as to you, 
and they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings, so will the Lord do to all the kingdoms through which you pass. You must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself fights for you. So here we find them still encamped along the east side of the Jordan River, and they're ready to go over into Canaan. Moses recalls for the Hebrews the recent battle here in this passage against King Og that's in the near vicinity of their current location. Now remember, he's the big man with a little name. Big man, giant. Found in Numbers chapter 21, verses 33 to 35. But with a little name, his name was Og, O-G. They captured the big man's bed, he was finished with it, and they put it on display. So how huge was Og? Well, don't know, but the bed he slept in was 13 and a half feet long by 6 feet wide, and it was made of iron. The conquered territory was subsequently given to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. We see that in verses 12 and 13, and that was at their request. This transaction was negotiated with Moses in Numbers chapter 32. The other half of Manasseh settled on the west side of the Jordan River with the remaining tribes. Other references to Og are Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 47, chapter 31, verse 4, Joshua 2.10, Joshua 9.10, Joshua 13.12, and verse 30. Well, the reason I mention all of those is because the memory of this great conquest was a monumental victory all through the national history of Israel, as is the case hundreds of years later, where we find it again listed in Psalm 135.11 and Psalm 136.20. When times were tough for the Jews, they would look back to God's miraculous provision on that day. Now, allow me to interrupt this history lesson by Moses, which began back in Deuteronomy chapter 1, to make an observation and an application for New Testament believers. As the Hebrews are poised on the east side of the Jordan River, ready to go into Canaan, and, by the way, realize the victory that God had promised all the way back to Abraham, Moses here is intent on recalling, for the sake of a memorial, how they got where they are. His record serves to show them what it was like when they rebelled against God, followed by how glorious it is to obey God. These milestones in Israel's history were memorials of God's provisions. They reflected both good and bad times. New Testament believers would do well to remember the milestones in their Christian lives, beginning with their very salvation experience, accompanied by the victories God has provided since that time. When circumstances are discouraging and it seems that Satan has you on the run, just reflect back on God's grace and those milestone provisions. When you're discouraged and your negative emotions begin to get the best of you, go over to Philippians chapter 4, verses 1-9 through 9 for a refresher course on God's provisions. When it seems hopeless, remember this, think God. But as we continue in verse 23, Moses recalls some bad news. Verse 23, then I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds. I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, 
Enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes toward the west, the north, the south, and the east. Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. But command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over before this people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you will see. So we stayed in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Well, while Moses is reflecting, he may as well remind them of this. Moses won't be making that final leg of the journey. As he tells the Hebrews why, he does remind them that it was their fault he wouldn't be accompanying them in verse 26. Now keep in mind, this incident about which Moses is reflecting didn't happen because of their fathers 38 years ago. This is a recent occurrence, happened in Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. He's not finished bringing that point up, though. He says it again in chapter 4, verse 21. We'll get down to that in a few moments. However, Moses does get to see the new real estate from the top of Mount Pisgah, also known as Mount Nebo. That's in the mountain range of Abarim. It's going to be Joshua who will lead them in. So here's the answer to a Bible trivia question in verse 29. Where was Moses buried? Well, the answer is Beth Peor, on the east side of the Jordan River. In chapter 4, Moses transitions over to the law. What's the difference? The law's the difference. Verse 1. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live, and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess." Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it, as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason, we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself, and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Especially concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children." Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness, cloud, and a thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. Well, chapter 4 still finds Moses addressing the Hebrews, but he begins this section with a solemn reminder in verse 1. 
He says, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. Well, here's the incentive in verse 3. He says, If you don't keep it, you'll die. Even makes reference to the Baal Peor incident in Numbers chapter 25 and the deaths that happened as a result of their idolatry to make his point there. That leads to the comment in verse 4 where he points out that they're alive today because they kept the law. We see in verses 7 and 8 that Israel is distinguished both by its God and by its law. These two realities are inseparable, so here's the deal. No other nation was ever given the law of God as Israel was. It's the key to their success. Now, this is a whole new generation than those who left Egypt with Moses 38-plus years ago. In verses 9 through 14, Moses recounts the revelation from God at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, in order to instruct the present generation who didn't experience it. Look at the principle Moses drives home to these Hebrews. The law that God has given the Hebrews, the covenant represented by the Ten Commandments in verse 13, that's what makes the Israelites unique among all the nations of the world. God never blessed another nation in such a manner. The reference to Horeb there, well, that's significant. That's the mountain range where Israel set up camp for the first year out of Egypt. That's where they received the tablets containing the Ten Commandments of God in verse 13. One of its summits was called Sinai. That's also where Moses had kept sheep for his father-in-law previous to the whole Exodus experience. That was the location of the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3. Moses reminds them that Israel stood at the foot of the mountain as God gave the law to Moses. Remember the smoke and the fire on the mountain as Israel stood at the bottom back in Exodus chapter 19? As we continue in chapter 4, coming down to verse 15, let's talk about idols for a little bit. Moses says, Take careful heed to yourselves, in verse 15. For you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not cross over the Jordan, but you shall cross over and possess that good land. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God." Well, Moses again issues the prohibition here against making any image that might be used as an idol. Egypt had been filled with such images, and the Egyptians worshipped them. Such was also the case with the heathen nations that Israel would be displacing in Canaan. The temptation was so great to make these images the object of worship that they were just banned, period. Incidentally, 
Israel was infested with idol worship for much of their history until their final demise in 586 B.C. Because the other nations around them were into idol worship, Israel just kept going back to it themselves. Well, so much for the advantages of being part of a global community. Now, Moses isn't bitter, but here it is again, a reminder in verses 21 and 22 that he's not getting the big payoff, which is entry into Canaan, because of them. He says, do the right thing and God will bless you. God gives them a formula for success as they enter the new land, and here it is. Serving God will bring success. Turning from God will bring failure. Now, as we come to chapter 4, beginning with verse 25, we have a warning, or, or is it a prophecy? Let's read. Verse 25, When you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, he will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he has sworn to them. Well, here it's almost as though Moses is certain that future generations of Hebrews will fall into idolatry and subsequently fall as a nation. It's difficult to know whether Moses is speaking from prophetic knowledge here or whether he's just giving a warning, but he accurately conveys what will happen in Israel's future. When the day comes that Israel will become idolaters, he says, the Lord shall scatter you among the peoples. Well, in fact, that did happen, and the northern kingdom of Israel fell for just that reason in 721 B.C., recorded in 2 Kings 17. And then the southern kingdom, uh, years later in 586 B.C., that's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 24, all because of idolatry. But wait, there's a promise of restoration there in verse 30. He says, When you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice... Well, and why will Israel be restored? Well, the answer is in the very next verse, verse 31, which says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. That return is recorded in the book of Ezra. Now, do you want to live longer? Let's read this next section, verse 32. For ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether any great thing like this has happened or anything like it has been heard. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard, and live? Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, 
by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might instruct you. On earth he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them, and he brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land as an inheritance, as it is this day. Therefore know this day, and consider it in your heart, that the Lord himself is God in heaven above, and on the earth beneath there is no other. You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So, learn a lesson from your ancestors, he says, and here it is, keep the law. Well, here's the guarantee for the future ventures in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 40. He says, You shall therefore keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. In making his point, Moses recalls the miracles which Israel had witnessed unlike any other nation on earth. He does so in verses 33 to 35. Let's look at those verses. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you've heard and live? Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other beside him. And, by the way, why did God do all of this? Well, it's back to verse 31. Because of the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. So, we change topics now in verse 41. And we look at it again, the cities of refuge. Where can you run when you committed a big no-no? Verse 41. Then Moses set apart three cities on this side of the Jordan, toward the rising of the sun, that the manslayer might flee there, who kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in time past, and that by fleeing to one of these cities he might live. Bezer in the wilderness on the plateau for the Reubenites, Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. So we're told by extra-scriptural historical sources that if a man were slain, that Eastern culture considered the duty of avenging him was the obligation of his nearest relative. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, we see the specification of the reality of capital punishment, where there it states, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. The regulations concerning the cities of refuge are found in Numbers chapter 35, Deuteronomy chapter 19, and Joshua chapter 20. And we see here the designation of the three cities that were established on the east side of the Jordan. These were only safe havens if your killing was an accidental one. 
You still had to have a trial, and if you were found guilty, the cities of refuge were no longer safe havens for you. These three cities are named, they're on the east side of the Jordan River, and they're named in verse 43, Bezer, Ramoth, and Gilead, and Golan, and Bashan. If you want to do further study on this, then in the notes on Joshua chapter 20, I have a table listing all the cities of refuge. All six of them may be viewed there. In chapter 4, beginning with verse 49, Moses introduces the law once again. Verse 44. Now, this is the law which Moses set before the children of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which Moses spoke to the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt. On this side of the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon, whom Moses and the children of Israel defeated after they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land in the land of Og, king of Bashan, two kings of the Amorites, who were on this side of the Jordan toward the rising of the sun. From Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, even to Mount Sion, that is, Hermon. And all the plain on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the sea of the Arabah, below the slopes of Pisgah. Well, it must be important because we're getting ready to cover the law all over again. Moses wants to be clear about the provisions of God's law with these Israelites before they head over the Jordan into Canaan. Since their success in battle rests upon keeping the law, then we're going to make sure they understand the whole thing thoroughly. In these verses, we see the big introduction of the restating of the whole law to follow in these subsequent chapters. We should remember, however, that the first giving of the law was done in the presence of their parents 39 years ago. These verses set up the chapter 5, where we'll find the Ten Commandments to be restated all over again, but not in today's reading. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walker.